usually we find ourselves praying about the stuff. We talk about the stuff. We complain about the stuff. We have even taken a holiday and a celebration that was intended to be a celebration of God with us. And what have we turned it into? It's mostly all about the stuff now, right? We have taken God with us out of our celebrations and mostly made it about the stuff that we get, the stuff that we can give, and God with us is often missing from the equation. When we do that, we are doing that because we don't understand Emmanuel. We don't understand God with us and the fact that God with us is what we most need. Christmas, it is a tradition around the world for people to reflect on that prophecy that a virgin would give birth to a son who would be named Emmanuel. And we're told what Emmanuel means, and it means God with us, and it does that as a way of telling us that it is the meaning and the significance of that name that is most, uh, that is the point of, uh, of that prophecy. But what does it mean that God is with us? Uh, what we are doing through this series is looking at the many dimensions of Emmanuel. That, that phrase, that word did not come out of nowhere. It was built up uh, through the different passages of scripture. And we want to examine those passages uh, to better understand what it means that God is with us and better understand what God wants to do in all of our lives this Christmas. This morning's passage teaches that Emmanuel means that God is worth more than all the stuff. Kate Bowler seemed to have it all. She grew up in Winnipeg. She was, uh, she's a Canadian. Uh, she went off to uh, do a master's at Yale University, then a PhD at Duke, where she wrote her first book and went on to become a professor. She married her high school sweetheart. She had a baby boy. She seemed to be living her dream. Until at age 35, she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer and everything changed. She said that one of the first things that happened to her, which she called a gift, she said, I had this discovery of how many people in our world are hurting and in pain. And it was her own experience of pain and suffering through this time that really gave her a bond with other hurting people and opened up to her a world that uh, when she was on the fast track, when she was living in the dream, she was not quite as aware of. But she said, uh, following that, that mostly what I felt was God's presence. She said, it was less like, here are some important spiritual truths that I know intellectually about God. It was instead more like the way that you'd feel a friend holding you. I just didn't feel quite as scared. I just felt loved by God. I think that's what we all want, right? I think that we want to know that we are not alone, that there is a God who is near to us, a God who is with us, a God who cares for us, a God who loves us. 
And if that's what Emmanuel means, then we all want that. But how do you get that? What does that mean? This morning's passage gives us some hints in maybe a surprising place in uh, God's uh, interactions with Moses and the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. So I want to turn with you, uh, turn with you there. Uh, it's Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 to 7. On the black, in the Black Church Bibles, on the rack under the seat in front of you, it's on page 68. Exodus 33, verses 1 to 7. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp for far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. This is the word of God. Now, the first takeaway from this passage is that if, when you assume that God is with you, you assume too much. There's a tendency, I think, for us to treat God like Siri or our Google Assistant. Uh, we just we make assumptions about who he is and what he's like. But we are reminded again and again in Scripture that God is holy and he needs to be approached with uh, the reverence and respect that his holiness deserves. When you assume God is with you, you assume too much. Now, our, our reading today takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. God has delivered the Israelites from Egypt. He has given them uh, his, his covenant, but they haven't yet left for the promised land. And there's this little detail in the text about this thing called a tent of meeting. It's a place where God is going to meet with Moses. And I kind of picture Moses having this little conversation with God about where the tent should go. And, of course, the most obvious place for a tent of meeting would be right in the center of God's people. And so I picture Moses, you know, how, how about here, right in the center, it's easy access, everybody would like to, to see you, to, to, have, uh, to have you near to them, and God just waves them off. And so Moses moves a little farther away. He moves to, to, the, to the outside of the camp, maybe. And, and he says, here, you'll, you'll still be near the people. You'll have a little bit more space, a little more freedom, maybe a little more privacy. This is pretty, uh, the next best place. And God weighs him off farther away. And, and, and he gets so far away that, that at that point, Moses has got to be thinking, God, I'm a little concerned with the distance. This is kind of, surely this is sending the wrong message. If people are going to meet with you, they're going to have quite a walk. And, and surely this isn't what you would have for your people. Hear exactly what it says in verse 7. It says, Moses, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. 
Now, if you were in the camp and you realized that God didn't seem to want to sit right in the camp, he wanted to be far away, you would sense that there's something wrong in our relationship. There's something going on here, and, and there seems to be a distance between our, ourselves and God. Why would he have to be so far away? Well, verse 5 helps us understand what the problem is. It says, For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. In case you're wondering, stiff-necked is not a compliment in, in, in ancient society as is it in, in our culture today. This is, this, is not, this is not God telling the Israelites how much, uh, how, how much he admired their, their character. And they, had, uh, they were here being warned about getting too close to God for fear that he would consume them in judgment. And maybe some of you are thinking, Paul, this is what I hate about the Old Testament. God always seems so angry. I was hoping with Christmas we could kind of park in ourselves in a different part of the, of the scriptures. But even in the New Testament, you have passages like Hebrews 10.31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so you get this picture of, uh, of, of, of who God is and what he's like. The problem is God is holy and we're not. And that causes problems for us. Our sin is like fire, God has a big hose. Our sin is like cancer, and God is a surgeon. And if we are determined to hold on to our sin, then God determines not to get too close to us because he will cut us with his scalpel. That's what God does with sin. And so you have this tension in scripture, and, and many people miss this. They hear the announcement that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and they think, well, of course God is with us. Why wouldn't he want to be with us? We're such lovable people. Of course God is going to want to get as close to us as he possibly can. But that's not quite the biblical story. And so if we start there without realizing the backstory that, that preceded it, we miss something essential. Now, this particular passage, Exodus 33, follows right on the heels of the golden calf incident. Uh, God had entered into a covenant with his people. He had given them the Ten Commandments. And they hear him and they say, we're going to follow those commands right, right all along the way. We're committed to you, Lord. We're in this all in. And Moses goes confirm the covenant with God on Mount Sinai, and before he has even come down from the mountain, they have rebelled and turned against the Lord. They had melted down their jewelry, made a golden calf to worship, and it was like they were committing adultery on their wedding night. A huge betrayal of God's love and his goodness. And for us, it's a reminder of how sin affects our relationship with God drives a wedge between us and him. It gets in the way. It creates distance. And if you've never really considered that, it's very difficult for you to appreciate what it means when it says that Jesus will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Because you don't realize what he is 
uh, the, the gap that he is crossing. You don't realize how he is drawing us near. When you assume God is with you, you assume too much. But maybe some of you have sensed that. Maybe you have this, this vague sense that, yeah, sin creates this distance between me and God, but maybe that's okay. Maybe, maybe life would just be easier with God a little bit farther away. I'll leave God outside of the camp, and I'll just see that I can get the stuff that I need from him to continue on with my life. Maybe, maybe that's the solution. I think it's a bargain that people make. I think it's a temptation that we all face. And it's one that the, that the text addresses. God deals with it head on. So let's consider the question that the text poses for you. Are you okay without God if he gives you what you want? Are you content with the presence you get from God, even if that means foregoing the presence of God with you? Are you okay without God if he gives you what you want? Now, that's the offer that God essentially makes to the people starting in verse 1, and I'll read, I'll read it for you. He says, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring, I will give it. It sounds pretty good so far, right? God is promising to give them the land that has been, has been promised, vowed to uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a good thing. God's promises are still intact. Nothing wrong there. But did you notice that God calls the Israelites the people instead of my people? Did you notice that he refers to them as the people you brought up instead of my people whom I brought up? Israel's adultery has caused a rift in the relationship. In verse 3, we move from hints to God laying out very direct, directly and specifically what's happened. He tells Moses, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, that's good. But I will not go among you lest I consume you on the way for you were a stiff-necked people. I wonder how you'd respond to something like that. If God said, I'm going to give you all the stuff that you want. I, I, I'm, I'm going to keep my promises. You get all the stuff. You get all that I've promised. But all, the only thing that's going to be missing is me. You get to cut me out of the equation, but you still get, hey, milk and honey, uh, this, this land that I have, I have graciously pr um, promised you. How would you respond to that? Because I think that is the temptation that we are faced with every time we choose sin. If we say, I want the stuff without God interfering. I, I, I want my life the way I want it without God getting too close to me without God getting too near. We choose the stuff over God with us. Usually, we find ourselves praying about the stuff. We talk about the stuff. We complain about the stuff. We have even taken a holiday and a celebration that was intended to be a celebration of God with us. And what have we turned it into? It's mostly all about the stuff now, right? We have taken God with us out of our celebrations and mostly made it about the stuff that we get, the stuff that we can give, and God with us 
is often missing from the equation. When we do that, we are doing that because we don't understand Emmanuel. We don't understand God with us. And the fact that God with us is what we most need. It is his presence that is what really it makes our lives worth living. It's what makes the promised land all that God had intended. It is his presence in those times where whether it be the ups or the downs of life, it is Emmanuel that we really need. His presence in our lives gives us peace. It gives us strength, reassurance, hope, and joy. And we realize in those times of difficulty, the stuff doesn't really solve the problem. We need someone who is near. We need a God who is with us. Now, the Israelites at least understood what was at stake. Watch how they respond in verse 4. It says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. They realized without God, we're nothing. Without his presence, we're just like everyone else. We're just going through the motions. We're just playing at religion. Without, without him, they knew that life as they knew it was over. And that's why they call this a disastrous word. That's why it looks like a funeral. They're mourning. What's that little detail, though, about the ornaments? What's that all about, right? Do you remember when the Israelites left Egypt? When they left Egypt, their neighbors, they, they were so overcome with, with God's glory and what he seemed to be doing. There was fear mixed in with some sense of awe. You know what they did? They gave them presents. They gave them the most expensive things that they had, and they kind of loaded them down with them. So they had, they, they had silver and gold. They have jewelry. They've got Louis Vuitton bags and Yeezy sneakers. Like, well, not quite that stuff, but, you know, like they, they had... They looked like they'd come back from a Yorkville shopping trip. And that's how they left Egypt. They, they were traveling looking like, whoa, we got all the stuff. And you know what they did and, and with, at Mount Sinai when they entered into that covenant? They took the stuff and they took their gold earrings. They just got these things. They were like really cool. And they said, well, these are, these are really great. We'll melt those down and make a golden calf. No, this, God has just delivered you. How can you do that? Here in this moment with God outside of the camp, far away, calling them stiff-necked people and, 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 and calling them to account for their sin, they recognize how deeply they have grieved the one who had delivered them. They realize how they have pained him. And in that moment... They're taking off all the stuff. They, they take off the ornaments and they say, this is not a day of celebration. This is a day of mourning. If you look at verse 6, it says that they took them off from that point forward. It, it was their way of confronting their sin and saying, never again. We are turning our backs on that. Not that there was anything wrong with the gold and the silver in itself, but what it symbolized for them was their spiritual adultery. 
It, it symbolized that they had, they had betrayed the God who loved them, the one who would deliver them. And I wonder if you've ever faced your sin that way. If God is just a candy dispenser, you don't really have to worry about the sin too much, right? We just do this. Give me the stuff. But if God is not that, if he is a person, if he is one who invites us into a real living relationship, then the betrayals matter. They, they grieve his heart. And, 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 it, and it causes something in our relationship with him. If we want Emmanuel, we, not, we need to confront what causes him grief. We need to deal with those things. And I think it's one of the questions worth pondering this Christmas. Do I want Emmanuel or do I just want the stuff? Do I want God with me or just what, I, what God can give me? Because those two things are sometimes in conflict with one another. Sometimes we can become so fixated on the stuff that we cut God out of the picture. We don't have time for him because we're busy chasing the stuff. Who do we want? Who do we think will satisfy? Who do we think we really need? And when we've asked that question, we will have come to terms with whether it is Emmanuel or the stuff that we have ultimately put our trust in. Now, the Israelites realized this. They knew that the stuff wasn't enough. They knew that they needed God. They knew they needed God with them, God near to them, God in the midst of them. But they still needed something, and it's the thing that all of us need as well. And that's the third takeaway from today's passage. Sinners need an in, someone on the inside. If we stand guilty before a righteous judge, we need someone who will advocate on our behalf. If, if there is this gap and God is standing outside of the camp, we need someone who will go to him, someone who will, who will speak on, on, on our behalf, someone who will represent us. Sinners need someone on the inside. Now that's where Moses comes in. He had not taken part in the idolatry of the golden calf betrayal. So he was able to speak intimately with God. In verse 9, it describes Moses entering the camp and the pillar of cloud descending upon the entrance of the tent. In verse 11, it adds, The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. If you had that kind of relationship with God, what would you be praying for? Like if, if God spoke to you face to face, you, you turned to God in prayer and, and like a cloud appeared before you, what would you be asking for? If you're Moses at this point, what, what do you want? I'd be saying, God, can I kind of get a break from these, these complaining Israelites? Can, can I have a vacation somewhere? Like this is just... This is wearing me out. I think I'd be complaining about myself. I'd be asking for stuff. That's not what Moses prays, though. Moses prays for the people. He prays that they wouldn't be left behind. He prays that they might know Emmanuel, God with us as well. 
In verse 13, for instance, he appeals to God. He says, consider too, this nation is your people. As if God needed reminding. In the next verse, God promises to just go with Moses. Uh, the, the you here is all in the singular. Hear, hear what God says to him. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest, he says to Moses. And, and the implication is, we can just start over with you. We'll, we'll leave the Israelites behind. They've, they've betrayed me. They, 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 we, we, don't, we don't need to bring them along. I, I will be with you, but I don't want to get too close to them. And it's a test for Moses. God's, God's heart is to, to, to redeem this people and to be restored to fellowship with them all along. But he wants to test what is in Moses' heart. Moses won't take the bait. He pleads on behalf of the nation. Starting in verse 15, he says, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses doesn't want to go anywhere with God. I don't care how amazing the promised land is. I don't care how much uh, milk and honey it may be flowing with. If you're not there, I don't want any part of it. And by the way, it's, I, I know that this nation needs you as much as, it, as much as I do. Don't send us unless your presence, unless you are in our midst, unless you are the God who is near to us. Do you think God is pleased to answer a prayer like that? God, God uh, of course he does. Of course he, he responds with a heart because this was his heart from the beginning. The friend of God secures the blessing of God for the people of God. And this is how God carries out his purposes. As you read on in Exodus, this, this becomes the, the starting point for God to not just live far off in a little handmade tent, but the, the tabernacle, the tent of God is established, and it is established right in the center of his people. God comes near. God comes and dwells in the center of his people. God is with them. God is near to them. As you re look at the role of Moses here, you think, boy, don't you wish you had someone like that? When you, when you sin, when you feel far from God, when you feel that there's just, uh, it just feels like a gap, there feels like I, I, am, I am not near to God, don't you wish you had someone like Moses who would speak on your behalf? Someone who is near to God, close to God, a friend of God, Someone who would speak on your behalf, who would represent you before a holy and powerful God. And of course, scripture declares that's exactly who Jesus is. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. 1 Timothy 2.5 says that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He stands in the gap for us. He is the one who speaks on our behalf. He does what Moses did only better because he never sinned. 
Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. When you picture God, God, you you picture the Father and the Son in this constant exchange, Jesus continually bringing before the Father repentant sinners and holding them up and advocating on their behalf that we might be near to God, close to him, never separated from his love, never separated from his goodness. That's what Jesus does on behalf of his people. And so the only question for us is whether we want Emmanuel or whether we just want the stuff. Do we really want his presence in our lives? Is that precious to us or is it only what we can get from him? What, what we can grasp in our, in our hands? Larry Crabb describes a time when he was three years old and he was locked in the bathroom. If, as a young child, if you've ever been locked in a room, uh, we had one of our kids locked in an elevator once, it was traumatic for everyone. If you've ever been kind of locked in a small space, you know, it freaks you out, right? Well, uh, Larry Crabb, three years old, locked in the bathroom, couldn't get himself unlocked. He was crying and yelling and screaming and his father, uh, so they couldn't get in from the outside. His father got a ladder, came up in through the window, passed Larry, opened the door from the inside, and Larry reports, I turned to my dad, said, thanks, and went outside to play. And he said, I wasn't conscious, but as I grew up, I I assumed that's how a relationship with God must work. And sometimes it does, but he said, I realized that's not exactly how God seems to work in our lives. He said, I'm realizing the Christian life doesn't always work that way. And I wonder, are any of us content with God? Do we even like him when he doesn't open the door that we most want opened? When a marriage doesn't heal, when rebellious kids still rebel, when friends betray, when financial reversals threaten our comfortable way of life, when the prospect of terrorism looms, when health worsens despite much prayer, when loneliness intensifies and depression deepens, when ministries die. God has climbed through that small window into my dark room, but he doesn't always walk by me to turn the lock that I couldn't budge. Instead, he often sits down on the bathroom floor and says, come sit with me. He seems to think that climbing into the room to be with me matters more than letting me out to play. I wonder if you've ever thought of God like that. Thought of God's presence itself as precious. I wonder if you've ever prayed for that. Prayed for more of him, not just the stuff, not the things that we would like him to do, and as precious as those are to him and to us, but just him. Recognize that God with us is precious and important and valuable. 
It is in those moments when we seek him for himself, when we prize time with him, fellowship with him, his presence in our lives as our, our distinctive, the thing that makes our lives worth living. It is in those moments that we begin to understand what Emmanuel really means, what it means that God is with us. And what a precious gift that is. If you've never prayed that prayer, if you've never thought about God in those terms, if you've never sought God for who he is and, and for his presence in your life, then I want to appeal to you that God really is worth more than all the stuff. He's the one we need. It's his presence in our lives that makes them worth living. So seek his face, seek, seek his word, seek relationship with him. Seek uh, the, the life that comes beyond the stuff to his presence with us. A God who is for us. A God who sits with us on the bathroom floor. And who values that time with us more than all of the other things that uh, might distract our attention. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, as we truly reflect on our lives and on your word, we realize that you're the one that we truly want. It's your presence that we most need. So use all of the circumstances of our lives to point us back to you. Use the hard times to remind us of how much we need you. Use the good times to remind us of your grace and your generosity. May we never take you for granted. May your presence always be precious to us. And may Emmanuel always be our greatest treasure. For we ask you in Jesus' name.